Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Phil Coover. I'm a partner with Ice Miller in their real estate practice group. And as you know, the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast is a commercial real estate podcast that discusses all types of real estate issues. Today, we are recording this on May 20th, and I I date that because everything is changing so fast with the COVID-19 pandemic that sometimes it, it helps to put a a marker on on the date of recording in case something changes dramatically tomorrow. But what we have here is we have a fantastic two guests and a co-host. So this is a this is a deep podcast. We're going to do Cadence Capital Partners, and we have two of uh, their directors, uh, Matt Bursky and Jay Sovey of Cadence Capital Partners, who are going to ex- talk about the money markets and how to uh, what is going on right now in the current state of affairs and how to build capital for projects and building the capital stack in general, as well as it relates to the current situation. And then we also have my partner, Jay Augustin, who is uh, also a partner in the real estate practice group and one of our our gurus of opportunity zone space. And so we brought Jay on because he can really uh, discuss the opportunity zone issues with, with Cadence Capital Partners and explain how those things are working right now. So anyway, Matt and Jay will be able to explain Cadence Capital Partners better than I. So Matt and Jay, thank you for coming on the show. And and let's just um, take it one by one. Matt, why don't you, you start and uh, tell us about Cadence and about yourself? Thank you, Phil. And, and thank you, Jay, for, for having uh, Jay and I in Cadence Capital Partners on here. We're, we're happy to, to join uh, Cadence Capital Partners. We've been uh, we're into to our fourth year, and we're a capital markets advisory firm that focuses specifically on equity raising for real estate sponsors. We've been very fortunate enough to to earn a really strong reputation um, in the marketplace by uh, going beyond the usual suspects and making sure that you know we're really identifying the. Um, you know, the family offices and multifamily offices out there that have an appetite for direct real estate investment. And, um, you know, in particular, we've carved out a niche in opportunity zone investment um, raises. And to date, we've placed over $100 million in equity. So um, they tell us that, that that's a lot. Um, people tell us that all the time. So I guess we have somewhat of a, a unique insight into a very niche raise in the um, in the capital markets world for real estate. So, um, yeah, we we're happy to be here and, and want to help uh, provide some insights that you know, especially in the post COVID world, we've been pretty active and across the organization talked to hundreds of equity investors um, every every single week. So it's good to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And, you know, what's I think rare about Cadence and about you guys is that often when you talk to companies that want to, uh, that say that they can help you fund a project, usually they're third party brokerage companies and they're talking about funding debt. And I think what's, what's rare, unique about Cadence is you guys actually build uh, and bring limited partners, bring equity to the deal. Um, and put people together to make the deal that it's not just uh, placement of debt on the project. 
Um, Jay, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and about your experience with Cadence? Sure. So my background, uh, attorney by trade, I worked for a number of large law firms in the Chicago area uh, as a tax attorney, um, which allows me to have a little bit more insight on the opportunities in the world than, than, than your average person, I suppose. Um, but that, that hat has been hung up. Um, I spent the last nine years prior to joining Cadence at Tishman Spire doing deal structuring, deal, deal execution, um, you know, understanding all the different aspects of a, of a real estate company, really fell in love with real estate there and um, wanted to see what the next step was in my career. And for me, that was doing something that was more entrepreneurial and front facing and uh, being a trans- transaction junkie at heart. Uh, I thought that teaming up with with um, my buddy of 25 years, Michael Bennett, who uh, works as a partner with uh, Matt Bennett or with Matt Bursky in uh, Denver, was the way to go. So I uh, hitched up the wagon, left New York and, and moved to uh, Chicago. And, um, you know, I run the Chicago office now. And so, you know, our focus is on the equity side of things and bringing a you know, an investment banking type bend to the concept and, and, you know, spending a lot of time trying to harness those equity relationships because equity is hard. It's difficult. And what we found is that it's not just knowing that these groups exist, which is important first step, but the next piece is to what do you want? Where do you want it? What's your check size? What's your risk profile? Do you like select service hotels? Do you like full service hotels? Do you like 1970s product of value add multifamily. You only like them 90s or better, and we're not going to get all that first that information, that super deep information on the first blush. But as we go over time and have a very bespoke curated process with a capital raise, we just continue to collect more information and uh, share that across our organization um, using various channels. We have a CRM, we have Slack. And so, you know, when I have a call or Matt has a call with a new capital provider, it's putting it in our our database, putting some tags on it so it's searchable within the database. So then when we have a project, we can search it. And then lastly, either talking about it in our weekly meeting or putting it onto Slack so that everyone gets the benefit of that conversation and they know that a new group has been added or some, some variation. And so using all of that together... Uh, it's allowed us to be to be nimble and to assemble a constantly growing large database of, of what we call uh, the you know the unusual suspects. Um, there, there's there's a there's a number of family offices in particular, and um, smaller private equity funds in, in a city in a region that um, fly under the radar or, or are on the on the the main screen for a lot of people where. We are, we're just continually farming those groups because they're they're perfect for a lot of the deals that we work on. Hey, Matt, talk to us a little bit about the data-driven process. I mean, one of the things that was interesting to Phil and me as we got to know Cadence was how you've developed your system over time in response to uh, the needs of equity. So we'd love to understand the origins of, of the system and now how it works in real time uh, to, you know, to help capital, to help equity kind of sift through deals, you know, to find the right deals for their investment profile. 
Yeah. Thanks, Jay. You know, I think one of, one of our challenges um, has been, which deals do we work on, right? We've earned a really strong reputation in the marketplace. And so, you know, we were approached quite often as an organization to help raise equity. And in, in the early days, we're, as, as Jay mentioned, we're, we're deal junkies. So it's very difficult to say no. And what we found was we gear up, mobilize the team, put together the materials, we're very hands-on, and we would um, go out and to our relationships and they would poke holes in the deal. And we would we would deliberate after and all saying, well, those are really good points. We probably should have pushed a little bit harder on the front end. And so for us, everything's aligned because we don't get paid unless deals get done. So um, Jay and I sat down, went to the drawing board and, and said we had to figure out a different way. So we ended up partnering with um, the University of Michigan Business School um, about a couple, about two years ago. They have a formal program where if you have a project internal, um, you can apply to have a team of MBA students assigned. If you're chosen, um, you get the team for four to six months, and it's it's really cost-effective, really, really high, highly intelligent individual uh, labor to help you bring your project to life. So we were chosen. We ended up having uh, the team out to, to our Chicago office, gave them a crash course on real estate, ended up getting them in front of some, some really top real estate sponsors and as well as family offices. And what we did at the end of the week was we put together a survey and targeted a little bit over 300 groups got back to us and we asked them, how do you evaluate real estate? And then how do you weight each of those categories? The team built out a model uh, that cut across 23 different um, areas, um, but at a high level, it looks at demographics, population growth, employment growth, deal vitals. It's very, very important for us to challenge the assumptions within the pro forma to make sure that those assumptions are uh, defendable with data. And then lastly, sponsor pedigree. That after the analysis is done, it gives us a probability score of being financed, as well as it highlights the greatest risk factors associated with the deal. So, you know, that's really helped us. Obviously, now we've scored 180 plus deals, and it's almost acting as as machine learning in the sense of we have a really good idea of where a deal needs to be or fall within um, the model, the scoring, in order for it to even have a chance to get done. And from there, we really work with the real estate sponsor to um, go through our analysis, really um, challenge them and see how they respond to it. And it's an important part because we learn the deal um, through the process and uh, it helps create alignment between you know, more of an anecdotally driven perspective that sometimes real estate sponsors have that boots on the ground um, lens that they look through. And it creates alignment with, you know, capital who are really data driven. Um, and, you know, that's really our goal is to create that alignment. And so when we go out, we're also equipped with data to overcome our the anticipated objections that we, through the analysis, we figure are going to come our way. So it really helps us be as efficient as possible when we go out on the raise. Um, 
So obviously that's helped us internally focus our attention on the right deals. And, you know, from a real estate sponsor perspective, they're like, who cares? Why would we care about this scoring? Well, you know, we always say that real estate's local, but capital is not. And so when we tell this story to, you know, a variety of different capital investors, whether it be a real family office or a multifamily office or private equity, they always stop us and say, what do you mean scoring? No one's doing that. And we, we laugh and we say, well, we realize that. Now, they're not going to take our word for it. Of course, they're going to do their own due diligence. However, when they're getting on average 50 to 70 potential investment opportunities on a monthly basis, one of their biggest challenges is which ones do we open? Which ones do we put our attention on? And they often tell us that it depends on who sends it. So, you know, it's helped us identify and, and choose to invest our bandwidth in the right deals, which then continues to increase our reputation quotient with capital, which everybody wins in then. So um, it, it has been helpful on multiple fronts and a lot of unintended benefits came out of it when Jay and I went down this path to, to build it out. It's, yeah, it's I think so that's exciting. just to add on yeah, to ahead. that. I think one of the things that, that it's kind of emblematic of the way that we run our processes. It's all obviously our clients, um, sponsors are our client, but it's all, everything we do is with a focus towards uh, catering to capital. It's weeding out the deals. It's running a bespoke process. It's so, you know, we're not sending, you know, triple net Joanne Fabrics deals to Goldman Sachs. Um, you know, not, not to say there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, you know, it's knowing who your target is and sending them what they want to see so that maybe they don't get an email from us for three months. But when when it is something that they receive from us, they're like, I should look at this because these guys are really trying hard to hit the target. And and the same thing with our our offering memorandums, where just we 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 want to give people dense, actionable data uh, and limit the amount of fluff involved because at the end of the day, if they got a hundred page book to look through, they're they're gonna, you know. One of two things, they're going to curse your name for making you read the whole thing uh, so they don't miss something. Or two, they're going to take the middle 80 pages, look at the overview, sponsor, and the financials, and you know then they're going to decide whether they want to call you back or not. So everything we do is with an eye towards making sure that we're getting to the top of the pile with capital. And you know we get told no a lot. I mean, that's fine. And I'd much rather have someone say, hey, this isn't for us. Then you know just to get go silence, and so by by being deliberate with our actions, uh, we've gotten a lot of great responses. Uh, it's very exciting. I mean, when you guys first told us about this, I think the analogy that immediately sprung to mind was the scene in Moneyball when it's the the new scouts versus the old scouts. You know, the old way is. Hey, this real estate looks good. It's on Maine and Maine. Let's invest in it. And you know, the new way is. What you guys are trying to, which are have created, is let's take a look at the analytics. Let's break down the stats. Let's get a scoring system so we can kind of remove some of the human errors that are involved, some of the biases that are unconscious. So we can just sort of focus on um, what 
what leads to more positive outcomes from a statistics perspective. It's, it's really cool. Is your scoring system like one to a hundred or is it a triple a double B like what, how do you, how do you score it? It is the highest score you can get is an 84. Um, but it is a tough grader. So nothing's come close to an 84. We right now, um, how it, how it works where internally, you know, and it acts as more as a, uh, as a compass for us rather than door-to-door directions because there's always um, so many moving parts uh, when it comes to bringing a real estate deal to life. But, you know, we, we like to see something within the 60 to 70 range for us to, to really dig a little bit deeper to see if it makes sense. Not to say that if it falls below a 60 um, that we throw it out the door, but you know, we've found that when it's in the 60 to 70 range, the, you know, it increases exponentially the chances of it getting done. And, you know, like we said, it's as for us, it's always about now there's value in everything that we score because the more that we have to compare it to the more effective um, the scoring uh, becomes, right? So our ultimate goal is to get you know, into the thousands of deals scored because it just continuously grows and in its intelligence level. And when we analyze deals, Jay, I was just going to follow up on on that point. In the part of uh, the podcast series in the last month, Phil has had on um, you know leading folks in the in the real estate industry, be it finance, be it development, be it landlord tenant relationships, all trying to process how the, the current COVID-19 environment is impacting a variety of, of real estate relationships and deals. Given what you shared with us on, on your model and how deals are processed, what are you guys seeing now? You know, has your model been impacted? And, and if so, how so uh, when taking into account the, the impacts of COVID-19? And, and what is that? What are the what is that data you know, share with you about how to interface with capital on, on projects that are currently on your desks? So I think that there's been a number, I don't know if it's affected the model so much, but I think it's just a little bit of a new paradigm as to what is going to be looked on more favorably. So I think high level first is, you know, it, this is obviously changes day by day. And Phil made the point of dating it that everything was so fluid and i think the first let's call it month 3 weeks depending on the size of the of the of the capital investor it was triage time and there's a number of groups who are still in triage depending on their asset allocation mix i think you know from a from an asset class perspective i think retail and hospitality have been hit particularly hard uh disproportionately uh retail was already kind of in a free fall anyway and this is just hastening that. Hospitality just went from doing very well, maybe some oversupply in some in some places, but uh to a you know a, a zero, which is you know devastating. Um I think that will recover much more quickly. Um so so now it's like okay well retail and hospitality, you know, those traditional deals aren't necessarily going to be the ones we should be working on like a development deal. However, at the same time a number of capital groups are like, well if you show me a you know, a main and main retail deal or a grocery anchored. I think those are still doing very, very well. Uh, or if you have hospitality deal, I'd love to get a, you know, great basis hospitality deal um, in a major metropolitan area or 
maybe I can take some some of these hotels and convert them into a multifamily. So people are looking to be opportunistic. Uh, I think on and then I, I think generally speaking, there's a there's a tendency to want to be opportunistic, whether that's buying debt, buying public securities, buying distressed real estate, and then a lot of people are kind of taking a wait and see approach. But you know, I think they say that. But really, and what reality is, is that you got to show them strong deal. And so if our range is the 60 to 70, maybe it's got to be more to a 70 or above for people to really get interest. I think that there's been a tendency currently to be focused more on cash flowing assets, particularly multifamily and industrial deals. I think the place where people are still interested in doing development is in uh, industrial for sure multifamily in good locations, uh, and then multifamily good locations, and particularly people are like a story where they can step into a shovel-ready deal and because an LP partner fell out. So I think we're seeing a number of places there where the, the spigot has been turned off by an LP, a project's ready to go. Now you can just step in. All the risk's been taken away you know, from an entitlement and getting your bank term sheets together and all that kind of stuff. And it's ready to go. Um, and, you know, I, rather than go longer and we can go into different pieces, but the lending markets have, have, have similarly been troubled where uh, lending stopped. Uh, it's continually getting better and better and better. It was, you know, dead, debt funds were kind of stopped. They're peeking their heads back out. A number of insurance companies were really one of the, some of the first movers to come back. Uh, you're starting to see the banks starting to dip their toe in for good sponsors and good relationships. You're seeing other banks who are saying, well, this might be an opportunity for me to step in and establish a relationship with someone who I wanted to because their bank isn't lending right now. And so I think you're, every day that goes by, the lending market is becoming less gummed up. And I think that's going to continue to to allow for more deals to, to start happening. Yeah, I mean, for a while, what we were seeing, and I think we're still seeing, is there's a real gap between what sellers were willing to sell for and what buyers wanted to buy for. And so um, there's that that kind of freeze on the market. Me, my sense is that it's starting to unthaw a little bit. I think it will pick up as as courts reopen, kind of interestingly. Um, Courts right now are still by and large, not at full operational capacity. And I think once there's a lot of businesses that have been temporarily closed, that it's unclear if they'll reopen. And at some point, the landlord's got to say, we need to clear them out so I can try to get somebody in who is going to be open and operating, uh, whether it's the same use or a different use. So I was thinking about that. I really think a key to a lot of the real estate market opening back up is uh, the courts reopening so that obligations can be enforced. Um, well, I think I that's, just, I, I agree uh, with you, Jay. I think that there's, it's also a, a factor of there's no, because this is such a unique situation where everyone in the United States as of right now is, is impacted because all these businesses are closed and everyone's working from home and, you know, you don't really see a lot of distress if 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 the lenders really can't be enforcing people and enforcing provisions. I mean, they've been basically told to play nice. And so until there's some return to normalcy, 
even, you know, the court side and also on the lender side where they're going to be like, all right, well, you're not, you know, 80% of my portfolio is now okay. And I can concentrate on the 20% that's not and start enforcing some of the provisions in my documents. But right now, everyone's kind of just looking around like, I don't know what to do. I can't foreclose on everyone. Um, and so I think that that's certainly something that has to happen. And, you know, the bid S spread is there. And, you know, I wonder where, where how that's going to materialize. I think one re- way it will is that interest rates, I think, are going to be different for like a bridge product than they were a couple months ago. I think the spreads have blown out for certain types of product and that's going to change, you know, so value add deals. I think a lot of people were getting to 75, 80% um, LTC on, on a value add deal. Those, those leverage numbers aren't there and the rate involved is not no longer something with a four in front of it. It's got a six or a seven in front of it. That's going to change pricing. But there's also such a tremendous amount of capital sitting on the sidelines waiting to be deployed, hoping for uh, some sort of correction so they can buy at a better basis. And, and you just wonder uh, in if you, you envision some sort of efficient market, whether the, that really manifests itself on the multifamily and industrial side, which I don't know if it will, other than certain select situations. Um, Hospitality, retail, we touched on. Offices is probably the big question mark, given there's a number of different uncertainties and questions there. Matt, as you uh, you know, <clears throat> take into account what what Jay shared, you know, understanding that you're engaged by sponsors and developers to raise capital, but as you're educating your your capital sources on the current market, you know, I imagine in some cases capital sources are are sifting through equities or sifting through, you know, potential distressed opportunities. When you have a deal that scores well, how does cadence or how do you envision kind of breaking through while we're in this holding period and being able to raise the capital for deals and, and kind of penetrate the uncertainty? Um, you know, is is it model driven? Is it your history of success? What do you guys kind of lean on uh, to to make something happen for your sponsors right now? Well, I think the first step is is always as we score each deal is continuously pick the right deals to work on, right? And so the benefit to to our organization because we have so many different across across everyone in the organization working on equity deals. There's value in knows as well, right? So if someone puts out a deal and gets turned down, we're, we're constantly optimizing the information we have in the database. So, you know, as, as Phil said earlier, um, you know, things seem to be changing. The only thing that we can depend on is things are changing at a rapid pace. So, you know, maybe a deal that someone worked on and got done, but they got, they had to get through 80 no's to get to the one yes. There's value on those no's because maybe a piece of information that, that, someone put into the database helped me can, you know, really fine tune the list of groups that we're going to who are active right now. Um, So I think scrutinizing deals even more. And I think one in particular, as Jay mentioned, you know, development has been in certain asset classes. um, We've had a lot of capital groups say, you know, development is where we want to be because on the other side of, by the time these projects deliver, we should be on the other side of, of everything. And so with that being said, we've been very sensitive to markets. 
Um, not to say that, you know, tertiary markets can't get done, but, you know, there's a higher risk adjusted return associated with those markets. So I think we've seen that. In addition to that, even though it's somewhat myopic, uh, rents, trend, trying to trend rents uh, or trending rents 2 to 3% pre-COVID doesn't sit well with capital post-COVID. So we've been really advising any sponsor as we're scoring deals on the front end, if they come with uh, a rent trend of 3% uh, for the life, um, we, we, we put the brakes on and, and just say, listen, you know, if this is what it takes to make the number the numbers work, you know, it's probably not going to uh, move the needle much for any of the capital groups because other other sponsors are starting to realize that, you know, we have to come up with the most the most conservative stance as possible. So, you know, I think really we've been advising everyone to come with more of a conservative, you know, case in the pro forma, which then helps us um, position it to capital. And, and lastly, honestly, it's, we got to, you know, look a little bit harder, turn over more rocks. Um, you know, Jay mentioned earlier in the conversation that we, you know, finding new capital groups, it's a race with no finish line. Um, and so, you know, Jay and I both have been um, leading the team on, you know, working just a little bit harder to find those those groups, the gems out there. And I literally just this morning, uh, about 20 minutes before this podcast, I connected with a single family office um, that reached out to me, heard of us in some way, shape or form. He reached out to me on LinkedIn, doesn't have a website. His his LinkedIn profile just says private, right? And, you know, he said, let's talk. I want to look at real estate investing. So the goal for there is I have a call already set up next week. And the more that I, you know, the the, the whole conversation is going to shape around, you know, how we present deals. But, you know, our curiosity is going to be on what is what does this individual want to see? And then, you know, we're going to categorize it and make sure that we only send things that that he has an appetite for. Um, and, and nothing else because we really respect, um, you know, that whole process when it equates to capital, because we've listened to the horror stories that they get, uh, a shrimp farm in Louisiana or a salmon farm in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And shockingly, they're, they're not excited about those. So <laughs> we, uh, we do our best to, to live up to what we expect of ourselves. It's like a targeted ad on your if as you're scrolling through your computer when you get those targeted ads. Sometimes they're like, "Oh yeah, I do want to buy that," and sometimes you're like, "I have no use for um, <laughs> some some wild, crazy, you know, women's biking shorts." Like, how do why do the why does the internet think I want to buy that? So there's there's a lot of value to sending people what That's they a great actually, question and, and actually want. Really, a question for you. Why are they showing you women bicycle shorts? <laughs> you know what? That maybe, actually, maybe that's another podcast. Maybe that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. You should not have said that out loud, Phil. That actually, that actually came up yesterday. My, it was my buddy sent it to like our group of friends. It was, uh, he's like, why does the internet think I want to buy these? So that one was fresh in my mind. Um, I will uh, not say the gentleman's name. He is a former guest of the Real Estate for <laughs> Breakfast podcast. Now, but now he did buy them. He did buy them because the ad was so persuasive. But the, you know, it's not the point, right? 
you know, the if, point if is, Phil's able to take this podcast and then his Phil's personal preferences podcast, we could bundle this to Spotify and hopefully really make something happen and we can quit the law game. <laughs> that that's just like that, just like Jay. <laughs> just like Jay got out of the law game. That's uh, you know, I'm always impressed by people who who broke away. So I, I imagine there's kind of two different groups of uh camps of people that come to you. And so I imagine there's either developers or sponsors. Um, yeah, develop, it doesn't have to be a developer, a sponsor of a deal, somebody who wants to get a deal done, who's looking for partners. Uh, and then there's also, like you're saying, family offices or investors of any sort that are looking for good deals. And so, um, you know, is do you guys, and so they go to you guys and say, Please filter this out. Score me some good deals. Send me deals that you think I'd be interested in. So, do you all? Do you get? I, I imagine you probably have like an equal amount of people on both sides uh, that that approach you because you provide a valuable connection point um, from both perspectives. Yeah, I think it's a it's you know it's a constantly trying to curate both sides of it it's a it's a um it's a never-ending task because you you have these moments where you're you're really going and trying to find some new opportunities and you also have these moments where you're really trying to curate some some of these hidden gems that that matt mentioned i mean there's there's a couple of people who i have on my target list and through some what we call professional persistence we we try to get our way in there. And, um, you know, I've, we have a number of success stories that way where, um, you know, shamelessly, but, but professionally, you know, following up with people, particularly on the family office side saying, Hey, can we talk? Can we talk? And then, you know, um, six months, a year, nine months later, they, they, they pick their head out and we get on the phone and we have a conversation and, and that's kind of, you know, those small victories are what, what carries us through the day. Uh, and, um, I think helps differentiate us because it's, it, we're not, we're not satisfied with just sitting still and laying on, you know, sitting on our laurels waiting for thinking that we have enough capital. I think we could always have more sources and we're always trying to curate those, um, so that we can be as effective and efficient as possible. You know, one of the conver- you know the conversations that we have all the time with our clients, both on the the sponsor developer side and on the capital side, is you know facilitating development in opportunity zones. I think over the past eighteen months, you know, there's been you know tremendous interest in ways to leverage the legislation and regulations into ways that uh, you know are going to make money for investors. We're also doing doing good in the communities that that really need that investment. Matt, you touched on a little bit earlier uh, Cadence's involvement in helping to source capital for Opportunity Zone projects. I wonder if you could shed a little bit more light on the the types of deals that that have scored well for you that you've accepted in the Opportunity Zone space and how those projects have gone. You know, it's funny. Early on, it was a couple of years ago when the um, OpZone tracks were announced and we happened to be in on a project in Denver and we had gone out with it as non-op zone and then the tracks were announced and, and it hit the op zone lottery. So we had to retool the project and, you know, that was early on as well. So it was, 
in its infancy. So there was still a lot of gray around regulations. Um, but we we hit the ground running in, in kudos to Jay uh, and his tax background. And, you know, as he sifted through the legislation, identifying the fact that, you know, back then, um, you know, from a capital perspective, the, the legislation didn't look fondly on commingled funds. So, you know, we, we opined internally that funds were going to have a hard time uh, potentially executing on deals. So we really went on a mission um, to uncover uh, capital groups, specifically family offices, who weren't going to send out press releases about, you know, how much capital their op-zone capital they're going to raise. They quietly raised their hand and said, yes, send us deals that look like this uh, because we'll have gains and we'll trigger gains when we're interested. So I think because serendipitously we were working on a project, it, it we were already in the water on, on op zones. And so it helped us, um, you know, be in a good position to, to catapult ourselves in there. Um, in terms of some of the projects that we've um, executed on, you know, some, some really, some really challenging ones, um, just from a timing standpoint, some student housing, um, mixed use office out East in Richmond, Virginia. Um, the student housing was in Las Vegas. Obviously I mentioned a couple different deals here in Denver. Um, we, Jay and I are both working on a really, really great project in Austin, Texas, which is a market that, uh, a lot of groups, um, across the country have their eye on and, and soft circle. Um, that project is uh, has gained a lot of interest um, so far. And so for us, I think one of the things that we advised on before, and we don't see it as much today, but you know early on, a lot of developers would would try to bake in the uh, tax gain into the pro forma to start. And you know for us, it, it really comes down to almost divorcing yourself, from the fact that it's in an opportunity zone and, you know, the real estate has to pencil on its own. And, you know, we, we analogize it in the way that the real estate's the cake and the op zone tax treatment is the icing. Um, and, you know, you need to make sure that the cake uh, tastes great before any icing is applied. And so we really advise um, clients on that. So those are some of the things that as we analyze and decide if it's a deal that we want to take on, we make sure that, um, you know, not only it scores well, but, you know, the developer has a good a good track record because, you know, sp sponsor pedigree always matters, but it matters just a little bit more when it comes to opportunity zones because, you know, some of these op zone investments last longer than most marriages, right? So for 10 years, they're, they're hooked to, hooked at the wagon, hooked to the wagon with uh, a potential investor. And you need to make sure that, the chemistry applies as well. You know, as you talk, right? So, you know, right at the end of last year uh, and probably for a while now, right? A lot of the uh, the press around Opportunity Zone investments centered on investments that were, were being made in gateway markets, high profile projects in New York and Atlanta and Houston and Miami, um, you know, but for reasons, you know, that I think you've articulated, right, that didn't really come through in those stories. You know, the idea that these deals still have to pencil uh, and make sense. And, and they may make, obviously, they make more sense in those established markets. How would you advise a sponsor or developer who's coming to you with a project in a tertiary market, uh, you know, on their capital raise and how they 
tell their story, um, what would you tell them? Well, it's and in it, you know, in the post COVID world, you know, mar- markets always matter, but they do seem to matter more. Um, so I think where we really try to, if we, as we go through the scoring process, grade it a little bit more difficult on um, or more challenging around the market and make sure that the, the risk adjusted return um, is there if it's, if it's a tertiary market, right? And usually there, there's got to be a compelling story in some, some way, shape or form. Is there a university in town? Maybe it's not student housing, but there's a strong driver. Um, is, you know, is it in a region of the country? Maybe it's a tertiary market in the Southeast. So, you know, there's a population growth story. Um, something that really revolves around the objection that we're going to anticipate getting of that market. And if there's not a story, you know, for us, it's probably, it's not necessarily an institutional project, not to say that it can't get done, but, you know, we, we'll be the first to, to tell the sponsor if we can add value, if we don't think that our investor network will add value. We know them pretty well. So um, it'll, it'll be a, a, a good, healthy discussion around maybe passing the hat um, to try to get it done because it's just, it, especially in the uh, post-COVID world, it, it can be a little bit more challenging to get those done. You know, I, I would agree with that. I think it's, it's it's a matter of uh, what investors are concerned about, particularly non-local investors, is that what what is my what's my exit option? I mean, certainly with a opportunity zone deal or any deal uh, that's development, the 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 cash flows during the investment are going to be dwarfed by your exit value, and if you're in an illiquid market, investors that are not local are going to be concerned about the variability in that exit. Uh, and, and maybe there's a good story there, as Matt said, but uh, I think when you start going more and more tertiary in, in the, in the development world, the, the likely result is that that's either going to have to be a coupled together capital stack. Uh, maybe you can get some preferred equity. That's not opportunity zone. Um, maybe it's just a lot, it's a bunch of high net worths who are familiar with the region uh, you know, from where we could potentially add value is like, oh, we know a family office that has a uh, office in Toledo, uh, or or you know, or some such thing. So I think it becomes a harder task, and it's certainly something that's doable. It just might be something that isn't optimal for us to help on, given given potential issues on the liquidity side. This is <clears throat> this is kind of a random question. Just a thought I had as we're we're discussing this. Do you think that the current COVID 19 pandemic will actually uh, damper the appetite to invest in some opportunity zones projects just from a simple perspective of the world is uncertain and I'm tentative about investing in something that I'm going to be in for 10 years. But I, I think it's if we, we, we believe that this is a temporary situation that that will resolve itself uh, one way or the other in the next one to two years. I, I think that you can make the argument I'd rather be in a development right now. Um, you know, you're going to have to get comfortable with where your rents are going to be coming out of it. Uh, but I think we're going to continue to be in a low interest rate environment for a prolonged period. So 
assuming capital markets are functioning, they should be able to, to, to refinance later. And I don't have to worry about lease up right now. I don't have to worry about tenants not paying. And at the end of the day, if I have a required 10-year hold for something, then I can weather the ups and downs so long as I'm not over leveraged up front. So mm. uh, it's kind of what Matt touched on earlier, which is if you have a good deal and it stands up on its own just you know, as a regular deal, you keep, you, you're conservative with your leverage at the same time, it's not fin- financially engineered, then you know, I don't have, you know, it's, if I'm averaging 2% rent growth over the term and maybe it's zeros and, you know, for the first three years, but it's bounces back up to four and five at the back, at the back end, net, net, you're in a good spot. You, you, you have the duration to weather the storm. And I think my guess too, is that, you know, the stock market crash that, uh, occurred in March will result in a number of people having significant gains. I mean, it's, most people, you know, it's as everyone knows, your people are selling all the way down, and they probably had stuff they bought a significant amount of time ago. The stock market's been on an upswing, so they've got gains, and now maybe this is the right time to analyze going into something that's uh, much more volatile uh, on the on the um, stock market side of things. Something that's a little bit more stable and uh, more cash flow oriented, and well, let's take some of these gains that I just triggered and roll them into real estate. I'll add to that, Bill. I think, um, you know, I think it also is dependent on asset class, right? So, you know, when it comes to opportunity zone, <clears throat> one of the one of the asset class that is still uh, waiting in the waters of uncertainty is office. You know, spec office leading up to COVID. You know, spec office is is always more challenging. Um, and, and it was really, really dependent up, upon market. Of course, the gateways, um, you know, were, were, for the most part, you were able to get things done with spec office and the right sub-market within the gateways. I think we've seen post-COVID on some opportunity zone deals in particular, um, although we, we don't think, we think long-term, um, it's not going to be a, a work-at-home economy. Um, you know, office, you know, depending on who you listen to, you could also make the argument um, that, you know, maybe you'll need more office space because people don't want to be jammed into an office space. You want at least six or seven feet from from each other. That's that I think is still uncertain. So, you know, right now, office deals are are definitely more challenging um, unless you have a tenant in tow. But if there's a, a a lease story, whether it be fifty percent or more, um, you know, I've had groups, plenty of groups, say we're we're still in, we're still interested in the right markets. Um, so I think it's very I agree with Jay's points. I've heard all the same things in the conversations. Um, you know, there are some asset classes that are uh, a little bit more um, scrutinized right now, um, but residential and multifamily in particular is. Uh, is leading the leading the race back. Yeah, I would I would just piggyback off that too. I think office is the big question mark. It's it could go one way or the other. I I personally have informally uh, working on a, a large project in downtown Chicago, and you know that's sort I, I you know I've informally polled lots and lots of people about whether they're interested in working from home or, or going back. Mm-hmm. And I think the 
overwhelming majority are are interested in going back. So I think how we work is going to change. Um, there had been a pretty massive swing towards more people per square foot. Um, and I think that's going to viciously swing back the other way. And so kind of a net out. Um, but there might be a push more to more suburban stuff, um, things closer to home, if this is going to be kind of a stop-start kind of thing. And I think one of the challenges is that's not even a COVID challenge on the office side in an opportunity zone were people's concerns about uh, TIs and, letter, and, and leasing commissions. So in a multifamily, you know, you might have CapEx along the way and, you, you know, reserve for that over time. But in a new build, that's probably not going to be a significant line item. But if you're doing a multi-tenant office building, you know, without some anchor tenant that has a really long-term lease, you're, you're going to have to provide for and account for, you know, significant, potentially significant tenant improvements and leasing conventions. And I think that just creates a whole host of tax messes uh, on the opportunity zone side. I think some of that's been cleared up by legislation, but I know that's a concern for a lot of investors is like, you know, if I'm pooling capital, um, how do I, how do I solve for this in year seven? My last question and, and Matt, your, your partnership with Jay Salve has just been so strong, but I wonder if there isn't a spot for you and me to uh, co-host our own opportunity zone slash marriage podcast that could really marry up a lot of our interests and really add a lot of value. So I wanted to see if, if that's something you'd like to explore offline. Yeah, definitely. I think with our personalities um, and charisma, <laughs> uh, and from an from an audience standpoint, I think we would we would get into the millions pretty quickly um, if we didn't have these two anchors holding us back. I know they really are limiting our our ambition for sure. Yeah, I, I don't want to get into it. It's very frustrating. <laughs> I would be your first subscriber. I would love it. Um, I'm going to let you guys out of here pretty quickly. But one thing I was just to say about, I think you did a great job of assessing the risks in office. And I think a lot of times, um, you know, people can, or the, the uncertainty in office, I think people a lot of times conflate risk with uncertainty, but they're, they're related concepts, but they're different concepts. To me, there's a ton of uncertainty in office, but I don't know if there's a ton of risk. I mean, the people like you're saying will definitely need office space. Could be more per more space per person, less people going in on a daily basis. Could be more in the suburbs where there's more parking, less public transit. Um, but I think there's still going to be a need for office. It's probably going to look a little bit different, uh, and it's and I'm not going to be the first person to predict how it's going to look. But uh, I don't I don't know if it's as risky as retail or hospitality right now because there will be some demand. It just might look a little bit different than it did the past ten years. I I agree. I think you know some niches, um, life science office, which we've got a couple, um, actually three projects now um, in life science and. You know, when it comes to lab space, you can't work from home. Um, that coupled with, you know, in the post-COVID world, you know, with all the talk around a lot of health um, manufacturing, pharmaceutical manufacturing, um, bring coming back to the United States, it has, we've seen a lot of increased attention um, with tenants calling on our sponsor to have these projects. Um, so that is a positive, a niche that we see um, continue 
continue. It was strong before, but it's going to continue to grow. And then, you know, really also going back to markets, right? There's some top secondary markets, um, Denver, and then Austin in particular. I mentioned that project um, that Jay and I are working on. It's mixed use with multifamily and office in a really uh, emerging submarket in Austin. And, you know, although office, the office component is getting um, more scrutiny, um, there's still definitely groups that uh, will have been digging in. And to your point, you know, they're just, they're scrutinizing it further and, you know, still realize that the view from the balcony looks good for office. Maybe not today, um, but, you know, over the 10-year horizon of an opportunity zone investment, um, they feel comfortable in, in gravitating to the markets where the job growth is is not going anywhere. And, and Austin is is a, a prime example of that. Well, guys, um, I really appreciate your time. Um, this has really been informative. I've learned a lot. And if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? So I think uh, we, we have a website, www.cadencerec.com. And um, Matt and I are both reachable by email uh, all the time with the first first initial of our first name and then our last name at cadencerec.com. Great. And then I'll, if any listeners want to get in touch with them, go to the website. I'll probably put a link to their website in our show notes. And, you know, we just really appreciate you guys coming on and telling us a little bit about the knowledge that you have and about your company and your, your rating system. And we've just really enjoyed it. So thank you, Matt. And thank you, Jay. And thanks to RJ. This publication is intended for general information purposes only and does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. The listener should consult with legal counsel to determine how laws or decisions discussed herein apply to the listener's specific circumstances. 